1: You Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist with the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz.
2: Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dane Clark. Hey, Dane. Hi, Andy. And also Hugh Syme. Hey, Hugh. Hey, Andy. Today's guest is guitarist, vocalist, and founding member of Firefall, the one and only Jock Bartley. Firefall first hit the scene in 1976 with the release of their self-titled debut album that would be, at the time, the quickest album to reach gold status in the history of Atlantic Records. The second single released from that album, You Are the Woman, became their biggest hit. And many more hits came after that as well. And success has continued to follow to this day including uh, their latest album, which we're going to talk about today, which is really good. It's got a bunch of cover tunes. It's called Friends and Family. So welcome to the Music Buzz, Jock Bartley.
3: Hi, thanks for having me. Nice to meeting all you guys.
0: Jock, it's an honor and a pleasure to talk with you today. Being a huge fan of the direct antecedents to Firefall, uh, the Birds, Flying Burrito Brothers and Spirit, as well as a longtime uh, Tommy Bolin admirer, and you replaced him. Wow, that's big shoes
3: to fill, man. Back in the day, it was. And I, you know, I was a, a hippie guitar player, so I didn't really know what I was getting into, and the shoes I had to fill. I, I just said, okay, let's go. You did well. I, I went back, and listened to a couple tracks on that
0: the Sunset Ride record. I really enjoyed uh, the the kind of uh, funky Keith Richards thing you were doing on. I'm not surprised. Kind of sounded like the almonds meet the stones or something with the girl singer on that. I thought it was cool. (laughs) You
3: know, it's funny how, you know, you progress throughout your career, you know, and get better and, you know, fit into different things. But the one thing that to me stands out, um, about the whole genre of music of that Southern California thing from the birds and the burritos and, and, and all of that, um, the intertwining nature of those musicians. When you think about, you know, uh Hinley and Fry were in Linda Ronstadt's band, and and Bernie Ledin was uh in the Breeder brothers and then joined the Eagles, and just it's amazing how many, you know, of those musicians and singers were so intertwined. And for me, being a Boulder Colorado guy, there was a time when many of the big L.A. rock stars, uh, got sick of living in L.A. and moved to the mountains above Boulder, Colorado. Stephen Stills, Chris Hillman, Joe Walsh, Dan Folgerberg, Brian Wilson. I mean, no, uh, Carl Wilson from the Beach Boys, uh, Richie Fury. Unbelievable. They just came into my hometown and suddenly Boulder for a few years was a hotbed. That's wild. All those guys moved there.
4: So you didn't have to grow up in L.A. proper
3: to make those connections. That's great. Well, you know, when I was in high school, I kind of thought, man, I should maybe go to LA. That's where all the action is. And something in the back of my ma- mind told me that there are tens of thousands of wannabe guitar playing guys out there trying to make it go. And when Rick Roberts and people like that started to move it into Boulder, I said, wow, they're coming to me.
4: Lucky you, too.
3: <laughs> definitely so I got a story for you that's pretty astounding so I've known for the last 40 years that the main thing in a band or an artist is the song you got to have the song or two or three songs and without the song and a singer to sing them you'll just be a little club band in your area you know and when I played with Graham Parsons and Emmylou Harris and the fallen angels. And I got the gig because I was better than the guy that they had. And I was no country picker. And I had to try to, when they hired me in Boulder, the next morning we left and I had to try to learn James Burton's licks on the bus down to Austin, you know, and trying to, trying to drop the, the needle on the part that I wanted to learn. Oh, there he is. You know, and it was really tough. And I was not a, not a country picker. So I wasn't the greatest guitar player for that band, but it was fated and fortunate and everything. Um, You know, I was going to go a different direction, but when we played our second gig with uh, Graham Parsons in Houston, Texas, um, onto the stage, we're playing on stage onto the stage, walks Neil Young and Linda Ronstadt to come sit in with us. And both of who knew, knew Graham from LA and I'm sitting, I'm sitting on stage thinking, Oh my God, I'm on stage with Linda Ronstadt now. And four days earlier I was painting my apartment buildings to pay rent, trying to get a gig and, you know, (laughs) and thinking, Oh, what's going to happen with me. And now I'm on stage with Neil Young and Linda Ronstadt. It was the first time Linda and Emmy Lou ever met or sang together. And after the two songs that we played Um, On stage, Neil said, hey, come on, everybody come back to my uh, hotel suite. We'll have we'll have a party. So Neil Young's band, Linda Ronstadt's band and Graham Parsons band all went back to Neil's hotel suite. Graham Parsons, like he was wont to do, he immediately grabbed one of Neil's guitars and probably played 20 or 25 country songs, just started playing and singing. That's what he did. He liked to have sing country songs for everybody. And the most amazing thing was, is that Emmy Lou and Linda Ronstadt sat fairly close to him, but they sat facing each other with their faces about six inches apart and actually blended their amazing voices together for the first time. And Grant is playing these songs and they're singing. And all of us watching that Not only was it obviously incredibly magical, but we knew it was really historic. Mm -hmm. I mean, Linda Ronstadt and and Emmylou Harris. Wow. So that was a real cool thing. Talk about this intertwining stuff. Uh, Rick Roberts, after a burrito gig with him and Chris Hillman, Rick heard about a a, a club that had a fantastic female singer singing at. He went down and basically discovered Emmylou Harris. And he called Chris Hillman, who was already in bed in the hotel and said, you got to come down here to the club. This gal's amazing. And Chris is saying, I'm already in bed. I'm not going to come down there. And he said, oh, no, you got to. So Chris gets up, takes a cab, comes down to the club and they they watch Amy Lou as a folk singer playing. And were just astounded by how amazing and beautiful and angelic singing she was. And a few days later, Chris Hillman calls his buddy Graham out in LA and says, I think we may have found the gal that you wanted to, uh, you know, you're looking for. Um, but it was so amazing, you know, because, oh, I don't know. I just, I just fell into this situation where, you know, and I, and I had heard after the fact that, uh, Robert Plant and Jimmy Page were in the audience watching the fallen angels and Graham at one point. And in New York city, um, Dave Mason came, and Dave Mason used to sleep on Graham's couch out in LA, you know, and I'm meeting all my heroes, you know, and sure. going, oh, boy. So the continuation of this story, I'll make it quick. I met Rick Roberts at in New York City when we played there. You live in Boulder? Hey, I live in Boulder. We should get together sometime. Now, he heard me on stage with Graham and Emmy Lou, and I wasn't a real country player, so I was maybe the le- weakest band uh, member in the band. But he came and saw a gig that I was playing with a rock band out in Boulder, and he said, "That's the same guy." Oh my God! Oh, you know, and he he basically stole me from that band, and I was going to be and I was going to be the uh, uh, his guitar player for his third solo record. That he was making he would quit the breeder brothers and we started playing and then mark andes from spirit and jojo gun started sitting in with us in boulder and it suddenly felt like a band and not a solo album of rick's and rick at one point said you know i know this singer songwriter larry burnett in washington dc he writes great songs sings great we sound good together you want to hear a song and Mark and I go, yeah, sure. This was before cassette tapes, of course. And Rick put on a big old, you know, reel to reel tape. And the first song we heard of Larry's was Cinderella. And we went, oh, you know, get him out here. And the end of this story was when Larry came out and we had our first week of rehearsal for a new band that didn't have a name yet. Didn't have any gigs yet. We didn't even have a drummer yet, really. Uh, We had a a few guys sit in with us as drums. Michael Clark from the Birds was to join about a month or so later. But on our first week of rehearsal with the new band that would become Firefall, we had 25 original songs to work out, written by Rick Roberts and Larry Burnett, which is astounding. You know, for you musicians in the crowd, you know that when you form a band, usually you don't know what you're going to sound like or what songs you're going to play. We had so many great songs to work out right from the get-go that a number of those songs, a year and a half later, would be on our first album, like Mexico and It Doesn't Matter and Cinderella and Living Ain't Living. Firefall was always about songs. And That first week was amazing for me.
4: When you say learn songs, are you talking about as a guitarist or a vocalist as well? Did you have to learn? Because you guys had a lot of vocal harmonies.
3: I was a background singer back then and mostly just being a guitar player. And one thing I'll say is that having been a a classically and jazz trained guitar player uh, from the age of nine on by the world famous guitar player Johnny Smith in Colorado Springs, he was my teacher. I learned early on just by watching him play and having him teach me all this technique and stuff that being a tasteful player and playing tasty solos really wasn't about what you played. It was what you didn't play and the spaces you leave and a lot of time the spaces you leave in a passage builds tension and actually says more than anything you could play. So I kind of took that sensibility into playing on Rick Roberts's and Larry's songs and just a lead guitar player is supposed to play the best thing they can play to make the song better. It ain't about showing off or playing fast or whatever. Right. Compliment the material for sure. Absolutely. Let's skip forward for
0: a second because you were just talking about uh, the being in the Fallen Angels with Graham Parsons. I wanted to talk about specifically five songs on on the friends and family record which i listened to the whole thing last night it's it's really great man people are gonna love it and our listeners need to check this out uh but i'm gonna start with maybe my favorite one which was on i, I think it was on the gp record uh, U, U las vegas
3: actually that was on grievous angel
0: was it on grievous angel okay yeah
3: and in fact when i was in the band we were playing i was playing songs when i was in the band off of GP in the first album, after that tour ended, they went out and got James Burton back and Clarence White, and they didn't need me on the Grievous Angel album. That's when Ooh, Las Vegas came out. And I just thought, you know, I I wanted to pick a good Graham Parsons song, and, you know, that wasn't one of his more famous ones, but, you know, I wanted an up-tempo song, and that's the one we picked, and I'm proud of our version. Totally badass! It's uh, it's it's actually my favorite song he ever did,
0: and other than the the hot burrito tunes, but uh, nice reinvention because it, it really cooks, it really rocks, and nice guitar work especially on it.
3: I knew once I picked that song. Now I was never a, you know, I'm not a country picker. You know, I I play more like a Clapton or a, you know, Santana or something like that. I'm a sustained woo, rock guy. You know, so I knew that I really couldn't play that Al Perkins part from the from the record. So there's a, a great guy here in Boulder named Eben Grace from Grace Preamps. He's a really good guitar player and a steel player. And I just knew when we picked that song, I asked him to guest appearance on uh, on that song. And I and when we were in the studio. He was saying, "Well, I think I'll try to underplay it and kind of be tasty." And I said, "No, man, go for it, <laughs> go go for all that country stuff." So there's awesome. two of us playing on that, and all those great country licks. That's not me, but you dovetailed into him. That
0: really worked well. You're 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 part of the solo first, right? Yeah, your part was first, and he came in. Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. I could tell it was a different guitar player, a different sound. I listened to it a couple times, man, and I'll be listening to it some more. That's my pick of the the month for. Everybody. Listen to it. It's, and I don't like anything. It's a great like, track. The it's it's
4: <laughs>
3: a great track. Really
4: good.
3: That's really good. Cool, well, you know what's he, interesting is that I knew going in when this concept came down that we had to be really careful picking the songs. For instance, uh, our new lead vocalist bass player, John Bisaha, Piss- who's also with the babies. Um so Mark Andes was in Heart for like 12 years in the 80s and 90s right. and and uh, you know what heart song are you going to do and and I knew right away that a song like Barracuda off limits nope we can't do that one that's not <laughs> one that's available right so which one we do and John came up to me and said you know I could sing the heck out of what about love and I went okay what about love here we go <laughs> and what's interesting about that track is Once we started cutting it, um, it started being reminiscent of Strange Way, our big hit from 1978. Mm. And so I kind of, as producer, I just kind of, you know, included that. And we need a flute part in the beginning. And, you know, another one was, what Doobie Brothers song do you play? A lot of those are kind of untouchables. And I, people were saying, how about Long Train Running? And I kind of thought, well... You know, that's kind of their signature guitar sound. dang, You know, so when we decided on that one and we cut it, there's two guitar parts that Tommy Johnson played on the originals. Maybe Patrick Simmons played the other one, but the main guitar part, which is the signature guitar part on the Doobie version of that, I wanted to make kind of the secondary, lesser important part and do... The other part being the, you know, the foundation of the song, our version, and we, we added sax to it. And, you know, even though it's different and it doesn't, doesn't sound the same, I think we kept true to the original and to our friends, the Doobie Brothers.
4: You mentioned flute. You Are the Woman, you know, also has, a, is that a, an important aspect of your arrangement thinking? Do you like the way the flute plays into your music?
3: Absolutely. And our original flute player, saxophone player, uh, the late, great David Muse, died a couple of years ago from cancer. And our new guy, Jim Waddell, was, was available and a great player from Boulder and pretty much replaced David in his physical decline, sad to say. But when the original Firefall made our first record, and we got our record deal with Atlantic. Um, we were a five-piece guitar band. And I took every solo there was. You know, and we got to the, to making the record. And we could have gone up the hill to Netherland and go to Caribou. But Caribou then, you know, the, the, the studio of the stars, they were only a lockout 24 hours, $3,000 a day. You know, we when we kind of went $3,000 a day, shit, well, you know, we'll eat up our budget in two weeks. So we decided to go down to Criteria, the hit factory in Miami, um, you know, where that made so many great records, you know, from the Bee Gees to Eric Clapton to Dave Mason to Crosby, Stills and Nash. Um, And we added David Muse on sax and flute as our color guy. And, um, you know, flute flute isn't a big rock and roll thing. I mean, there's Jethro Tull, there was Marshall Tucker that had a flute player and there was Firefall that had a flute player, but yeah. And you know, for me as a lead guitar player to suddenly have another guy who could take a whole solo or take three or four Mm -hmm. solos or live us go play off each other and spontaneously jam together. It was just wonderful. And that's kind of what, firefall got known for is the musicianship
4: you mentioned being classically and jazz trained um a few times in this conversation you kind of selfie facingly said i didn't have the chops or i didn't i wasn't a picker it sounds to me like like you had the you had the wherewithal to to learn it and to and to hear it and, and figure it out and play it um and and to that point who were your your peers at the time that you admired? Who, who who do you admire and who have you played with that you felt like you needed to pinch yourself?
3: When I was in high school in Colorado Springs, Colorado, the Beatles were and still are the best band ever. We
4: can be friends now.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, the thing about uh, George Martin and Jeff Emmerich, you know, they painted pictures with music and even a guitar sound that didn't really do anything flashy. The guitar sound was like oh oh unbelievable, so I was I was way into the Beatles and the Stones, and then when the Birds came out, I just you know that first Birds album with you know uh, Gene Clark, uh, Jim McGuinn at the time, and David Crosby singing all that stuff. It was like great for me to have had in my near future after being a high school guy loving the Birds to suddenly be in a band with some of them or play with Chris Hillman or, Oh God, Roger's Roger McGuinn's on stage with us. You know, it was just, it was just really perfect timing and then being at the right place at the right place at, at the right time for me. Let's talk about that first
0: birds record. I'll feel a whole lot better. Probably my favorite band other than the kinks is the birds. And that's one of my favorite songs of all time. Love Gene Clark, all that stuff. But man, that's fabulous. And it sounds like Gene singing on it, too. It just, it I got chills listening to that. It really did to me. It felt more, wow. it was just, yeah, <laughs> I mean, like Gene was a little more in tune, maybe, but but it still had the <laughs> essence of it. And I thought that it was better than Tom Petty's version, and that's pretty damn good.
3: Oh, why? Well, thank you. Um, I'm an okay singer, and I get, got good pitch and everything. But with Steve Weinmeister and John DeSaha, the main vocalist in Firefall now, they are so good that I didn't even really care if I sang much on this record. That's me singing, you know, feel a whole lot better. And for you to say that it sounds like Gene, that makes me feel great. You phrased it like him. The, the there was some, It just sounded like, it.
0: you know, like I said, it's just a little more in tune maybe than Gene was in 65 or whenever that record came out. But it's beautiful, man. That's my... It's probably my favorite, you
3: know, other than Ulas Vegas, I mean, that's the one that, that really touched me. It was fantastic. Oh, wow, that's Love. great. And, you know, of course, I asked John Jorgensen, the, one of the best guitar players on the planet, if he would play the 12 string on on that song. And and I said, yeah, take the solo, too. Come on, let's go. And, you know, it's really great because Jorgensen's one of the best players going. What the beauty of that is, is he almost played what McGuinn
0: played, Note for Note. I mean, he held, he held the original in such high esteem that he would go and say, you know, the, the best way to compliment this is try to play it just like those guys did.
3: Well, I've got, a, I've got a little story for you. So, yeah, and I'm a really good lead guitar player with a distinctive style. But, I, you know, for instance, on the Hart song, um, I'm good friends with Howard Lee, rock and roll hall of famer with Hart. And then in the last 10 years, he's been playing with Bad Company, and, um, you know, I, I asked Howard, hey, we're doing What About Love? You you played such a great solo on the original version, the heart version. You want to play the solo on our version? And he said, oh, that'd be great. And then he got back to me and he said, you know, you of course, we changed the key so John could sing it. It's not the high Ann Wilson version. Um, he said, you guys changed the chords on the solo. So I can't play. The same solo and I said oh I don't want you to play the same solo come up with something new Howard he said oh okay so dig this 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 will this will make a few of you musician guys laugh um, so with him having played with Paul Rogers in Bad Company you know Howard's a you know a, a power guitar guy I asked him if he wanted to play some power guitar uh, uh, rhythm guitars on the chorus and then play the solo and he said okay great And that was all done by email. And he sent me back his solo. And the solo, the notes were really good. Those notes you hear on there. But he sent the solo. He and the engineer out in L.A. decided that they were going to use a clean, direct guitar with no distortion and a lot of echo. And when I heard it back, I went oh my God, we need some power in here. This solo is too clean and it's not really doing what I would hope it is. I like what, it, what he played, but the engineer and I and, and Boulder, I said, okay, so let's make another Howard track and let's put an amp simulator on it and see if we can get the distortion we want out of that. So we did that, but because the engineer in LA had printed the echo and the reverb on the original track, it was, it was increased and it was too much echo. Yeah. So wow. I had two Howards and I'm going, shit, this is too much echo. And I figured out pretty quick, okay, I'm going to learn Howard's solo with my beefy guitar sound and with no effects on it. So I learned the solo and played it. So when you listen to what's on the record, there's three of us playing that solo. There's two Howards, one clean and one dirty with too much echo and me with no echo. And we made a single sounding guitar out of those three. And I think it sounds great. That's the
0: kind of trickery that, uh, that is kind of neat that we can do these days. Oh, that's awesome. Making records is such fun. And how about I got a line on you? I mean, I'm sure that that's a rival to the original too. Uh, you guys'
3: version of that. That's killer. Well, thank you. And, you know, I decided, so, John DeSaha, who sings Simple Man and the Doobie Brothers song, and, you know, great vocalist. Steve Weinmeister, who was in Firefall for 25 years, he's a great vocalist, too, and I wanted to keep them kind of split evenly how how many songs they sang lead on. When it got to uh, I Got a Line on You... I wanted to try to have them sing at unison and create a vocal that sounded like one guy, but it was really two guys singing unison. And that's what we did. And uh, briefly about that, as a lead guitar player doing leads on songs, for instance, that Toy Caldwell played for the Marshall Tucker Band or those great screaming three guitar players for uh, Leonard Skinnerd or Dan Fogelberg on Part of the Plan, or Randy California on on, uh, I Got a Line on You, I really tried to, you know, be true to and not copy the solos necessarily, but on on I Got a Line on You, I played Randy's guitar solo, which is just classic and wonderful. I pretty much played that verbatim because it was so great. Right. Same thing with Dan Fogelberg, the the solo on Part of the plan that that Dan played, you know, I didn't want to change. I wanted to honor it and play it. And it doesn't sound exactly the same, but it's basically the same solo. And then when you go to Marshall Tucker or Doobie Brothers, I just just burned and kind of kept them in the back of my mind. So I wanted to honor any one of those lead guitar players that I got to know back in the 70s. That's
0: awesome, man. Well, you you sure did a hell of a job on this thing. Um, and Colorado came out beautifully, too. One of Rick's classic early songs there. That Linda Ronstadt had such a big hit with. The harmonies are incredible on that. How many guys are singing the harmony parts on that one?
3: On our version? On, on your version of Colorado, yeah. Well, another studio trick, when the lead vocal, whoever sang it, was done, On Colorado, with Steve Weinmeister. Um, And I'd be in the producer, I'd be be in the control room, and John and Steve would be out singing harmonies. And so uh, I'd say, John, okay, you take the high part. Steve, you take the middle part, and we'll sing it. Sounded great. I said, great, let's double it. So there's four of them singing that. And then I'd say, okay, Steve, you sing the high part, and John, you sing the middle part and boom, and then double it. There's like eight of them singing at different parts, and that's the thing that producers do if they, you know, if they know what they're doing, is they make, you know, 12 vocals sound like two. That's the old Doobie Brothers trick from Ted Templeman back in the day. Well, you know, after the Bee Gees left Criteria Studios um, and then started their own studio, their engineer and, and producers, Carl Richardson, Al, Albie Galutin. I played on uh, Andy Gibbs' Shadow Dancing record and, and uh, you know, got a platinum record for playing on one song for about eight bars. But hey, but anyway, I remember visiting the BG studio in Miami and I walked in and there were three 24 track, three inch tape machines and it was all vocals. And there was like 20 or 24 tracks of Barry singing and there was Maurice and Robin and you're going, and and then they had like two more 24 tracks. That's the first time I ever saw that in the studio where they, they got that big BG sound by having 15 or 20 of the tracks, you know? Wow. Yeah. Wow. So they had two 24
0: tracks hooked up together, tape machines back in the day. Three. Three. Okay. So forty eight, uh, yeah. Let's do the math here. Wow, that's the uh, yeah. Ju- just the uh, just keeping those things running together must have been a trip,
3: especially back then. Well, that's the thing that was weird. That's the first time I ever saw that, and I'm going, how do they? When you press the red light on one of them, how is it that the other four work? You know, it's like that's beyond me. I'm a guitar player, but it was it was amazing to to watch them do that
0: on a twenty four track tape one track is sync.
3: Oh right. And I
0: think yeah, and I think that's how that's I mean, I don't know exactly. I know I know that's what it's called and I know that's on there for some reason that must be have something to do with being able to line those guys up but that's pretty tricky for 40, 45 well, years. Well, you know
3: Firefall did that same thing um on the first album Rick and Larry played a lot of the acoustic guitar parts that they wrote the song on by about the second guitar, uh, album on I was playing most of the acoustic guitar parts. And for instance, on Just Remember I Love You, which sounds like one good acoustic guitar, there's really four of me playing and putting them together and spreading them out a little bit. And it sounds like one incredibly big acoustic guitar, and it's really three or four different passes.
0: Wall of acoustic guitars. Wall-O guitars there. That's like the... Uh... The double tracking thing that the Beatles came up with, they they were doing stuff so they didn't have to re-sing it, didn't have to double themselves back in the day. Um, Right.
3: Jeff Emmerich's book, I forget what it's called. You know, there's there's and it's every song they ever recorded over all those years. um, There was there was a time when Lennon tells George Martin, I'm getting sick and tired of having to sing everything twice. Why can't you just push a button and have there be two of me? And, you know, they looked at each other, and the engineers in lab coats went home that night and came back the next morning and had vi- had invented the the doubling box and, you know, being able to DDL, you know. And uh, another one there, too, McCartney said "Who they would be listening to Motown records, and he said, you know, our bass parts don't sound like those great Motown records. Why do I have to plug my bass into an amp? Why can't I just plug it into the board and play and they looked at each other and the next day the engineers came back and they had uh they had uh, invented the uh the direct box to plug right into the thing you know it's like yeah wow the beatles were it baby no question man you're not going to get any arguments from any of us about that <laughs> oh god you know to me every facet of the beatles from early Beatlemania mania to the later stages if you think about the stretch of time, which was under two years, like a year and a half, they made Rubber Soul, Revolver, Yesterday, and Today, and Sergeant Pepper's in a a little over a year and a half. Unbelievable. Yep.
2: Hey, I'd like to go back to the uh, the, the mid seventies there when you guys were signed to Atlantic. Can you tell us about how you got signed to Atlantic Records and that whole relationship and and whatnot? Because when I was, when I was growing up, I had this great box set and it was called like the Atlantic years or something. And it had, you know, Led Zeppelin and Bad Company. And you guys were on that as well. And I think, you know, it's obviously a storied record label, but, you know, take us back to how that, how that came about to be the the relationship and getting signed with Atlantic.
3: I'll get into that in a second, but I always surprised the heck out of me that Firefall's first album went gold quicker than any album on Atlantic history. And you're talking the Stones, Led Zeppelin, Aretha, you know, you're going, that can't be true. But they said, oh, yeah, you know, it's like, wow, you know, and 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 frankly, being an artist, I wanted to paint the first album cover, the Comet, you know, and they said that's and I was talking to the art director and he said, that's a great idea, kid. We'll take it from here. And it's a good thing I didn't paint it because they made that album cover, you know, but I stressed to them. I don't know if you guys know who Maxfield Parrish is, the illustrator that does all that amazing blue stuff. I was thinking when we were, you know, doing that album cover, um, I, you know, and you'd go in a record store and there'd be a hundred albums that you could look at. I wanted our album to just stand out and go, what the heck is that?
4: I had the opportunity to to McCoy Ludwig, who did the book on Mash- Maxwell Parish. I was such a fan of his in the, when I was in my early twenties. I had to know more about how you did cobalt blue as the underpainting than yeah. the, the normal green earth. You know what I mean? That was. We'll get to that in a minute. But that.
3: Oh man! I'll tell you what. Yeah, I, I Maxwell Parish on a lot of his paintings started from a blue canvas and then built it up. And each layer he put. Varnish or something, so it's that it's oh, it's illuminating. Yeah, Maxfield Parrish was the best.
4: He also used a varnish that was a fast drying varnish because he was doing the Edison posters, the the post covers, along with uh, what's his name, the other American, uh, Rockwell. Um, but he was drawing, he was drawing about six paintings at any one time and under the sun to keep pace with his deadlines.
3: This guy was oh man. That's amazing. Hey, speaking of covers, Lynn Fico, our manager, said, "Hey, Jock, you're a really good painter. I like your stuff. Why don't you do the the cover for this uh, for this Friends and Family album?" And I went, "Yeah." Now my son's a great artist, photographer, designer. I asked my son Jamie, who had just gotten some AI pr- uh, things, and yeah, yeah. I asked him if he could come up with a cover. And a day later, he brought me the cover of this Friends and Family album, and I just went, oh, you know, that's that's Yosemite,
4: baby." Was that AI, or did he with it was him
3: he, controlling AI? But yeah, some of that's AI. It's a
4: pretty daunting uh, thing, this AI, when it comes I, to yeah,
3: and scary. Boy, and, no, uh, talk about that intertwining stuff. When Firefall Chris Hillman made our uh, produced our demo tape. Right. Um, and we shopped it to Warner Brothers first who paid for it and Mo Austin passed. He said, no, nah, I'm not interested. And suddenly we were out on the open market and our manager at the time was shopping it to Atlantic records and they are going, Hmm, you know, these guys might be cool. Um, at the time uh, Rick Roberts had gone out and played with Steven Stills as a singer guitar player. And then Chris Hillman uh Rick and I would go out as the Chris Hillman band and Mark Andy's joined so Chris could play mandolin more and Mark could play bass when we were on a Chris Hillman band tour shopping firefall the the demo and we're out doing other things um we got to New York City and Chris found out that he was really sick and and the doctors told him go home to Colorado don't play any more gigs and we had two nights more of Chris Hillman band at the other end in New York City. And Rick Roberts said to the guy, "Well, hey, we could fly Michael Clark and Larry Burnett out and finish finish the two nights, and you won't have to do anything, and we'll play it as Firefall." And the guy went, "Oh, okay." So we flew Larry and uh, and Michael out, and that second night of the uh, of the engagement. About 10 people from Atlantic came and heard us. And the next night, the, the same 10 people came and Ahmed Erdogan came and heard us and liked what they saw and two weeks later offered us a seven-year record deal. So it's funny because had Chris not gotten sick, Atlantic had never would never have really heard us. And uh, sometimes shit like, shit like that happens. That's wild
2: another question about the 70s so you guys tour with such a wide array of big of big acts in the 70s you know not just like in one pocket but i was looking like doobie brothers leon russell elo the band and then you guys were also the opening act on fleet with max rumors tour as well so you know when it came to I, i've always you know been just looking back at old posters from the 70s and looking at you know uh the pairings and kind of the opening acts with a lot of those tours like Take us back to that time frame, like during those years of touring, like what was that like, you know, bouncing from tour to tour to tour and then ultimately ended up on a, you know, a massive tour like Fleetwood Mac at the time.
3: Fleetwood Mac rumors in front of stadium 75,000 people kind of thing was, it was unbelievable. Uh, we opened for them a lot during the White Album, and they liked the fact that we could go up and play our little 35-minute set and maybe not even get a sound check and be just fine, you know. And uh, so we opened many of the rumors shows, which which were the most astounding gigs I think I, we ever played. But I have to tell you, the band opening for the band's last tour, and I used to every night after we'd play our little set, I'd get behind the curtain and I would be ten feet away from Levon Helm playing drums and singing, and. And behind him was Garth Hudson. And sometimes on the last tour, they'd have that like five piece uh, Civil War horn section play with them. It was like, I mean, the band, I think, you know, got to be one of the best American bands ever just because they were so unique and so wonderful. Um, Firefall was lucky. um, And radio at the time was either AM or FM. And we had big AM hits. You know, You Are the Woman was number one on Easy Listening and Just Remember I Love You in Strange Way. But FM played the heck out of Mexico and and, uh, Cinderella and songs like that. So we could really, you know, play with a, we could play with the Doobie Brothers, but we could play with an Ambrosia or we could play with a, you know, uh, uh, other bands. So we kind of fit in and we were a really good opening act back in, in, you know, in the seventies for those, for those guys. Yeah. Well, Oh, Hey, I know. I want to tell you one last quick story. When we went to criteria to make our first record, of course, nobody had heard of firefall. They knew who Michael Clark was or maybe Mark Andes or, or whatever. And we're in there. And I mean, the Bee Gees are down the hall and Steven Stills is down the hall. And we're making our first record. And the Outlaws were making their second record right across the hall. Um, I remember when it came time for me to record solos, the day before I recorded the solo on Mexico, we added that mariachi horn section that goes, da 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 you know. But it was in the yep. middle of my solo. And I would played that song for two years in preparation for the recording of it and never had to contend with the, the horns before. So I'm warming up at, at, out in the studio at Criterion. People are in and out of the control room. And and the, the, the producer, Jim Mason, pushes the button, said, you ready to go? And I'm going, yeah. I've been wor- warming up. My amp, amp sounded good. And by the way, my 58 Cherry Sunburst Les Paul and my old Fender Super amp, I didn't have to have any pedals. You know, if I turned up to eight, I could pretty much sustain any darn note I wanted to. Started playing Mexico. And answering back the lyric and answering back the lyric and playing good second verse. Here comes my solo. And so I'm playing my solo and I'm thinking in the back of my head, okay, where are the horns? I don't know where the horns are. And then I'm playing and then all of a sudden they come and I stop and they play and I play and I stop and they play. And then I finish the song and it ended up being a one take performance. And the the producer said, that was great. Come on in. And I said, you know, Jim, it sounded good, but when, when the horns came in, I had no idea what I was going to do. Let me see if I can beat that. Let me Just that, like, 16 measures. Let me try again. And he said, no, come on in. I said, Jim, I want to make it as good as I can. Let me see if I can just beat that section. And he said, no, come on in. I go, no. I take my guitar off. <laughs> I kind of storm in the control room to give him a piece of my mind. And the first person I see in the control room is my guitar hero, Eric Clapton, who's been watching me play. And It was like, oh, you know, and (laughs) it's a good thing. I didn't know he was in this control room when I was playing because I wouldn't have been able to play anything. The producers keep
4: these things from people. They know the the
2: (laughs) Now we touched on it a little bit ago, which was album covers. And we always like to talk album covers. Having Hugh on the show, of course. Um, so I'm gonna turn it over to Hugh and let him talk album covers for a second.
4: Well, you mentioned being an artist yourself. You're a painter, you said. I am. Yeah. Still doing it. I asked you earlier about who you admired as a guitarist. Who do you admire as a painter? Who do you who do you um respond to?
3: Maxfield parish. Oddly enough, France Klein, who did these black and white things that were real quick. A lot of my work ended up being kind of like, you know, the forbidden stitch and kind of like that. And in the last couple of years, I've tried to really just do strokes and then see what it's like and do much quicker things. Um, I've had a lot of influences art wise. And, uh, you know, I'm a lazy painter being a full time musician. So, you know. But mine are all colorful and and uh you know and whatever. But uh you know I've had a lot of influences and some of them come out in some of what I do and some of them are just you know you know in, in the brain.
4: You mentioned earlier just with the way you gestured, you know, I, I assume at one point you were very tight and photorealistic and working with triple zero brushes. <laughs> yep. I still like to do that, but Every once in a while, I've had the opportunity to uh, to be a little more abstract and surreal.
3: Well, you know, it's funny because I think I told you that when the first album was coming out and being the artist in the band, I was the guy talking to the art director, Bob Deferin. And I said, you got to think Maxfield Parrish on this thing. We need to have a standout. And I sent him some drawings of what Firefall might be. And that's when he said, thanks, kid. I'll take it from here. Oh, and, and the guy who did the airbrush on a, on a, um, a picture of a lake in Wy- Wyoming in the daytime, he airbrushed that whole thing. So fast forward 20, 30 years, I went, there's a lot of people who want to buy the first album cover and actually Atlantic Records own it. I said, since I helped think about it, I'm going to do my own painting and i'll sell those prints at gigs but it'll be my painting of the first album cover so yeah that's my original but i copied that from the uh from the uh the the, the original album cover so it's neat having and and not uh, looking at you and you know you're a musician and you're an artist and it's it's great having a couple of ways to find the muse
4: yeah and the, the tricky thing is we're mortal <laughs> and, and you're right about well, having enough time in the day because the passion runs pretty deep on both sides of that rail so you know to have enough time that's why sometimes i go down the black the rabbit hole of music when i've got other you know art deadlines so i wonder well, it's four o'clock already and what have i done with my day well i've been playing piano i've been playing music all day and that's why I ended up having to work till 11 o'clock at night to make up for it, you know. Your logo had a really beautiful calligraphic design look. And I remember when Harvest came out by Neil Young, it had a very similar kind of vibe. And I think in that that era, that kind of, um, that look and feel, even Carney by Leon Russell had a similar kind of graphic. Um, Where did that come from?
3: Atlantic Records hired a illustrator and he came up with, he knew we were from Boulder and the mountains and the comment was already done on the album cover. So he came up with that really 70s looking logo, which I think is great. I mean, it's, it's so of the time.
4: It is, yeah. But it's still, it's beautiful. It's beautiful calligraphy. It's beautiful design work.
3: I had nothing to do with that other than be appreciative and dig it.
4: When you look back on your your days as a consumer, and I I have a good sense of you being an artist, working with Bob and so on, on, on the actual, working with the art directors directly. As far as kind of growing up and observing album covers, how much did that matter to you? How much did it prompt you to buy an album with the shelf appeal of a good album in a store um were you were you moved by a good cover or did you
3: oh absolutely so i was a jazz classically trained um guitarist and i was playing most everything i played when i was 12 and 13 and 14 off of uh off a of paper that johnny smith gave me and I even have some stuff that said, this is an improvised solo. And I'm reading it. You know, I'm going, oh, dude, I'm not really playing this. It's like, you know, I bought the first cream album, Fresh Cream. Yeah, yeah. Not knowing what it was or who it was because I liked the cover. So I bought the cover. I bought the album. and went, who are these guys? And I took it home and I listened to it. And amazingly... When Clapton's first solo on the first song of that Fresh Cream album played, literally the, the heavens opened up for me. And suddenly that was possible, Whoa, you know, playing like that. And and at, in that moment, I knew that everything that I'd ever played really was off paper. And I went, I want to do that, you know. And, and I was a convert. And as soon as the Beatles came out on Ed Sullivan on February 9th, 1964, I didn't want to learn jazz anymore. You know, so it's like Johnny Smith was teaching me all these inverted minor ninth chords and all this jazz theory. And I'm going, I want to be in a rock band.
4: You know how many of our guests have cited
3: that show as being the impetus for their entire career? And I you Oh, know, yeah. I- no question. And how many millions of young... Uh, American guys started growing their hair that day guilty (laughs) guilty but the cool thing for me was I'd already played guitar for four or five years when 1964 happened I started in 1959 and so when the Beatles hit I could already kind of learn some of their songs and I'm going I want to be in a band you know I want to play rock and roll And then when the the bluesy stones came out early on, you know, December's children and all that stuff, it was like, wow. It's always interesting too, that, you know, the English musicians, the stones and Clapton and John Mayle and everything, they introduced white kids in America to the blues. This is great. You guys, I, I like talking to three of you guys and getting different questions and inputs and, and uh, yeah, it's, it's really cool. And I just know how lucky and fortunate I am to be in the position I am now. And it goes back to the songs, you know. Thank God for meeting Rick Roberts and Larry Burnett and having all those great Firefall songs to play. Do you have a Michael Clark
0: story? Being an being a incredible uh, Birds fan, and I, I got to see Michael play with a reformed Birds with Gene Clark in 1985 and got to meet him. Uh, I know he had a tragic ending to his life and that kind of overshadows his drumming history, but do you just, do you have any Michael Clark memories you
3: could share with us today? Michael was a gentle soul and he also could turn into Mike Einstein. but uh. he, he was, he wanted to when his rock and roll days were over, he was a painter and he, and but. he also loved, uh, horticulture and growing plants and he wanted to open somewhere settle down and open a plant store you know and you're going wow the king of four four wants to you know to sell flowers and stuff there was one <laughs> time a couple of my paintings went on tour with some traveling rock artists featuring ronnie wood of the stones and grace slick with her with her white rabbits and, and everything. And I found out that there was a painting of Michael Clark's on tour also. And they put my piece that I was on tour right next to Michael's, which I'm going, that's great. I didn't even know Michael was a painter until, you know, probably after he died, but he was a unique and wonderful guy. Um, You know, the story about how Michael got, his name and got in the birds right yeah but tell it to us <laughs> well um i think uh, so, so michael came down from washington and went to la and ran into jim McGuinn, david crosby and chris hillman who were thinking about getting the, the band together and uh with gene clark they were the beef eaters for a little while and michael said oh yeah i'm a drummer you need a drummer yeah, I just got off the road with uh, Junior Walker and the All-Stars, which was a total which, total BS. And they went, really? And, and Michael got hired, sight unseen with whether he could play or not, uh, because he looked like Brian Jones from the Stones, you know? And they thought he'd be perfect. And then they found out that he hadn't really learned how to play drums yet, which is why Hal Blaine and all the wrecking crew played on uh, Mr. Tambourine Man but um the story goes and i and i so michael's real last name was dick michael dick from spokane washington and they had their they had their first um they had their first press conference and the guy interviewing them says well let's go down the line and everybody tell us your name Uh, david crosby chris oman jim McGuinn, gene clark and they get to Michael last and Michael goes and he realizes he doesn't want to be Michael Dick for the rest of his life. He goes, <laughs> Michael Clark, but without a, with was with an E. The last last name he heard was jeans. So he he picked Clark off the top of his head is a good thing he wasn't sitting next to Hillman. He, he would have been Michael Hillman, probably Michael Hillman <laughs> with an E. <laughs> but he said, oh, yeah, uh, Michael, Michael Clark with an E. You know, so that there were two Clarks in the birds. But Michael was one of the kindest and gentlest and cool guys, you know. And what an honor to play in a band with, the, with a guy from the birds. I mean, they were my I mean, heroes. he played 8 Miles High, man. 8 Miles High is one of the great drum tracks of all time. And one of the you best know? bass parts. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man.
4: Did you run out and buy a 12 string the moment you heard the birds?
3: No, I went out and bought a fuzz tone the first time I heard satisfaction.
4: There you go. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I've never been a big pedals guy. You know, no. I'm a purist about and when I had my my Les Paul and my super reverb just whoop. so on stage now I've got a distortion pedal, a echo pedal and a tuner. I've got two pedals not counting my tuner. And uh-huh. you know it's all bone uh, tone.
2: I saw you guys a few years ago because I had a show with you here in Indianapolis. You guys played with the Atlanta Rhythm Section and uh, Orleans at the I- Indiana State Fair. Oh, um, right. Yeah. And it was uh, th- the show was presented by Yacht Rock Radio. I would love and we've had some other guests on here as well. What's your whole take on the this whole Yacht Rock thing and how it's just exploded over the last few years?
3: Well, first of all, any publicity is good publicity. You know, and so if there's a lot of people talking about 70s music and occasionally throwing Firefall in, that's great. What's interesting to me is on Facebook, they will, somebody will put up a thing is, you know, Ambrosia's song, so-and-so, Yacht Rock or Not. And then they get in these huge arguments about, no, that's not Yacht Rock or yes, it is, you know, and. The people that you know, you know, do the pages on on Yacht Rock. I guess there's a really narrow thing that is and isn't, you know. And Christopher Cross is sailing is top of the list, but Michael McDonald's whatever isn't. You're going, I don't know what, what's that all mean. They seem to know what what is Yacht Rock and what is. I guess
0: they need they need something to do, don't they? <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's just interesting how it's really taken on a life of its own. And, and you know, the good side of it, which I agree with you, is there's no such thing as bad publicity, but, you know, it's also this element of like, you know, it's just strange how it's really, it's, it's become its own thing, you know, but it is keeping the music out there and it's kind of introducing it to a new audience and and, and whatnot, which is pretty crazy too.
3: Another thing that's a bit strange is tribute bands, you know, Eagles tribute bands, U two tribute bands, you know all this kind of stuff. If they get big enough, they make more money than the us. You know, yeah, they'll they'll be out there and and touring and you know just thinking they're the 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 best thing since sliced bread, and they're just copying everything. Some do it really well, though.
4: The band called the Analogues do an entire white album and sergeant peppers which is pretty is, is pretty stunning you're right though it is, it is emulating it is kind of borrowing borrowing from the geniuses but it's still
3: well you know i i you know 99% of guitar players uh, that are deserving aren't as lucky as me you know i get to go and travel around the country and sometimes to japan or the U- europe and play and thank you for the songs and i'm a great player and all of this kind of stuff but It is interesting, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, because if you're in a cover band, you know, you'll still get paid $400 a night, you know, and have to pay for your beers, you know. But if you're in a tribute band, you know, you can make thousands and thousands of dollars. And the truth is, and I had this discussion with a friend a couple of years ago that was saying, well, I like, you know, I like this Eagles tribute band better than the Eagles. And I'm going, now, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's one thing on, for Joe Walsh to play, you know, because, you know, when you're making a record and it's a brand new song that's never been recorded, that's kind of like a blank canvas to paint. Yeah, exactly. Whatever comes up, comes up. And when Joe Walsh or Don Felder or Bernie ledden would play those solos, they were inspired and they tapped into the muse and all that kind of stuff They just and them, they yeah, just they, and, yeah. And, and you know it's a lot different when you are good enough to just cop every lick that some guy played and then go make a lot of money for it that's okay i'm not i'm not knocking it but it's not in the same not in the same uh ballpark as when you are the creator and you can tap into that right brain muse and just play
2: right well, it's interesting because and I've had this conversation with a lot of people because over the last 10 years or so, you know, it started out where there was tribute bands, and it was almost just a laughing stock type thing, where it's kind of like, oh gee, a tribute band, I'll never go see something like that. And then what I noticed was the quality of the tribute band started to be significantly better and started to be accepted and started to be, hey, as long as they sound like them or they look like them, or they, you know, they emulate them, then it starts to change perception a little bit. And that was really for like free or soft ticket events. Now it's becoming where there's like, there's queen tribute bands like that are going out and getting guarantees of 30, 40, $50,000 a night, you know, to play a theater. But the other side of this too, is there's also bands that are big enough, you know, touring amphitheaters, quite frankly, that, really, even though they are the quote-unquote real band, they're really a tribute band as well. And you could argue and say, you know, whether it's... And, and no offense, because, I, I mean, some of those bands... No, no, really it's enjoy absolutely seeing. true. If it's Foreigner, if it's Leonard Skinnerd, if it's in certain circumstances, you could, you could argue if it's Journey or whoever else, you know, a lot of these bands, even though those original singers in particular are still alive, perhaps, they're not the singer in the band anymore. And so... You know, but the reality is some of the guys that have replaced are better singers than that guy, even though he was the original. So it's really an interesting time where I think that some of us who grew up with this music and grew up knowing who's in the bands and reading liner notes. I had a conversation with somebody about one of those bands I mentioned the other day and they said, you know, there was a bunch of younger people there at the show the other night and they had the time in their life and enjoyed the show and it was high quality and they don't care. As long as the songs sound great and it's a great show, by golly, it it doesn't matter because they don't know.
3: used to get that a lot with early on. Well, where's Rick Roberts? And then a few years later, nobody cared if Rick Roberts was the singer and lead uh, uh, in Firefall Live, just so long as the guy singing You Are the Woman in strange way sounded good and liked the record, you know, and You know, and uh, I loved it. I loved it a few years ago when Mark Andes um, and David Muse and I were the three original guys in Firefall. And David sadly got sick and died. And Mark got sick and tired of touring and retired, you know, and then it left me as the only original guy. But then again, you know, as a band leader, I got two really, really good singers, and we nail it when we play live. And and you're right, they don't really care out there if it's sung as it as sound, sounds like it's supposed to.
2: Well, and I think here you're, you're hitting on right. something that that strike that does strike a nerd with me when I'm having these conversations with other people. I'm like, look, if somebody passes away, there's nothing you can do about that. If somebody just physically can't perform anymore, they can't sing anymore, they don't feel comfortable performing anymore, whatever those. Reasons are, if there's still members of the band that are founding members or that are members that want to keep on going because that's their job, that's their livelihood, there shouldn't be any issue with that. For whatever reason, it's like people get so upset about that sometimes. I'm like, look, there's a whole lot of reasons. Every band's different. and uh, But you got to remember at the root of it, it's a business. And this is what these guys do to make a living. And so, you know. Back to the
3: business sense, if a tribute band can sell out a big club or a theater and charge 30 or 40 bucks a ticket, you know, then they get paid for how many butts they can put in the seats. And, you know, some of us out here, you know, you know, are struggling to, because I'll tell you what, going out on the road, particularly nowadays with air airfares way up and, you know, flights canceling left and right. And, you know, it's like going on the road is, is tough. Oh, well, but I'm lucky. I'll tell you what, I, you know, I've been in I've been in Firefall now since 1974 and just bless my lucky stars. You know, it's great. you got to be proud of that. That's
0: awesome. You know, and I'll, my two cents on the tribute band thing is it's all fine. But, you know, like in Indiana, tribute things have taken over to where sometimes you used to hear bands like I, I have my own band. I have eight records out. I've had a band for 22 years. We do a lot of fairs and festivals in the summer. and But sometimes people don't want to promote somebody that's got original music. They'll take the cover band music. I just think people are missing out on new acts that maybe have something to share. It's not just reiterating some old Allman Brothers tunes.
3: Well, and that was what was so great about the 70s. The uh, The record labels allowed the bands to play their own material. Now they may not like it or they may decline the record deal that they're asking, but so many bands, you know, had their own material and really perfected it. And when you think about it, the first couple of Eagles albums didn't go gold right away, you know. It took a few few albums and something to really click on and then suddenly, you know, Hotel California came on and they were the biggest american band going you know it's like yeah commercialism is is a a thing and fortunately fortunately firefall came out before the record labels had a a stranglehold on what they wanted bands to do oh yeah I you know. guys the, a fortunate time
0: of course you know that it's a totally a different game now when it comes to original music even even making a dime from it you know
3: well, how do songwriters make money now? I mean, in 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 the early firefall, when we were making forty grand a year, which was a lot of money, as uh, in 1976, Rick Roberts and Larry Burnett writing all the songs were making two million or something, you know. But now, you know, the only way that songwriters, with all these free listens and streaming and you know Pandora and all this stuff, You know, unless you get a song in a movie or a TV show or a commercial, you, the writer, aren't going to make any money. And that's just the way it goes. It is a shame. I wonder how Nashville is functioning because I used to go to Nashville a lot and write some songs and hang out in the scene and stuff. And boy, the the competition to, you know, to write this song or get, get your name on as one of three or four writers on it was all about money and now it's like wow it's it's totally changed the music business
0: yeah it still is every song's got three or four or five people writing on it yep it's cutthroats. some
4: of the big artists no, no names mentioned um they have a stipulation that if you want to be a part of their album they're going to get a writer's credit whether they had anything to do with it or not and they're going to get a big Big cut of the royalty. They're gonna,
3: yeah. And there's and I yeah. will mention the name uh, <laughs> George Ter- George Terry playing with Eric Clapton back in the day. A couple of those were his songs, and and he was told by the management that Eric needs to be half writer on this song or else it's not going to be on there. And George was smart enough to go, okay, 100 of nothing is still nothing. 50 of uh, Eric Clapton single. Oh boy, you know. Mm-hmm. He is he is smart, but it is it's pretty heavy. That's heavy handed Of course, that's been that was going on back in the fifties
0: with Elvis. He never wrote any of those songs. Yeah, yeah. It's true. That's true. Yeah.
2: Awesome.
3: I mean, if you think about okay, Little Richard had a wop bop la you know a tutti Fruity, You know it was it was a huge hit on the black charts and was climbing the pop charts, and then Pat Boone put out tutti frutti the white the white guy version of tutti frutti and didn't mention uh little richard as a writer Mm. and it was like what how does that work that's that's not i didn't realize that
0: until he put it out i didn't know that he that little richard wasn't mentioned as a writer that's crazy he he wasn't
4: wow i have to i have to hear pat boone what was it like a real aol aol kind of uh pruner version of it or was it still pretty upbeat
3: it was it it wasn't anywhere near as soulful as Richards, little Richards, I'll tell you. It's like per- Particularly if you think about Pat Boone going a wop bop a bop a lamb bam, you know, it's like no no no. It's
4: like Perry Como singing it's like Perry Como singing jailhouse rock. It just doesn't
2: Yeah. So I got a question for you. So you did this great new record with all these classic songs on it. So how did you guys choose to to have Simple Man be the, the first single?
3: Well, that was interesting because Lynn, our record label said, okay, the Doobie Brothers song is the first single. We're going to push it. And I wasn't sure about how we recorded it and if it was going to be accepted. I just tried to make a good record and change it around a little bit. So it was going to be Doobie Brothers song. And that's when he said, it's got, that one's got to start the record. I went, okay, you're the record label. No problem. And about, Two months into getting ready for Long Train Running to be the first single, the record label decided, you know, we want to put Simple Man out. We want to put something else out and kind of just open the door to this concept of Firefall doing other people's songs. And and the Doobie Brothers songs will be the second single that we're going to really hit it with before the album comes out. And I kind of went, okay, well, what do you think? And we talked about, well, could it, was well, should it be Folgerberg? Should it be Marshall Tucker? And then Simple Man, you know, because, uh, you know, Gary Rossington had just died and, and they had on that big Nashville show, you know, where all the stars got up and sang Simple Man mm-hmm. and, you know, and there was a lot of attention to it. And our version was, uh, was really good. I thought, and, yeah, um, you know, I said, I said to Lynn though, Yeah, but the problem is, is it's like six and a half minutes long. He says, this isn't for radio. This is just to open the door and blah, blah, blah. And I said, hey, you're the record label, you decide. And so they put Simple Man out knowing that they're going to put the Doobie Brothers song out here in a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. I've been in the business a really long time. And I know that when things like that come up, the record label gets to decide. You know, and the record label gets to decide. No, we're not going to put the album out in August. We're going to put it out in September. And my only beef with that was do not, you know, postpone it any further than that. Because in the old days, if you put out anything in October, forget it. Everybody else already had their Christmas albums out. And that's it. And I did not want to put this album out in 2024. I said, if you can keep it till September 20th, fine. And he said, no problem.
4: Yeah, you're right. You're right about that sweet spot, especially back in the album buying days. Yeah, mm. the pre-Christmas sweet spot. <laughs> the
3: pre-Christmas sweet spot.
2: Yeah. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Something to think about.
3: <laughs> you know, I have forgotten in the hour and a half we've almost been talking. Where are you guys located? Indiana. Oh, yes. Yep. I'm a trans-
4: I'm a yeah. transplant. I'm Canadian. I'm from Toronto, which is how I, how I ended up uh, working with the band Rush. But yeah, I'm, I'm in Indiana now. My daughters are here, so it's good to be close to them too.
3: And he's a Hoosier a, a hillbilly. I'm gonna tell you. Uh, <laughs> well, that kind of reminds me of the band. They had four four Canadians and Levon cool. from Arkansas. That's and right. They were all listening to a big R&B station out of Memphis as teenagers, one in Arkansas and four in Canada. They were listening to the same music going, I love that stuff. It was a good time. That was a good era. It was a good era.
2: Well, thank you, Jock, for joining us. We really appreciate the time and congrats on the new record.
3: Thank you. Um, you
2: Thanks, probably genius. know
3: this already, but I'm, I'm starting Friends and Family 2 as we speak. Oh, really?
2: Nice. Okay, cool.
3: We're picking carefully more songs and pretty much the only one I'll tell you that, that we're going to do is we we left out a Stephen Stills song on our first album, so we're going to do Love the One You With by Stephen Stills. And, uh, you know, it's really fun and it's got a lot of responsibility to it, but we're going to do one more one more record like this and then, who knows, make another new, new song, Firefall album one of these days.
4: Yeah, great, man. I would love to hear that. I would love to hear the Firefall project. Uh, and, and I also am curious, on, on album number two of Friends and Families, are the Beach Boys going to
3: make the cut? Yes, they are. And you know what? I'm having a lot of trouble thinking about the song to do. And yeah. I've, asked, I've asked Steve and John, well, what do you think we should do? And everybody in the band basically says, well, let's not do the little deuce coop early car stuff you know help me this stuff but you know we're thinking in my room i don't know that's kind of the beautiful song yeah
4: there's yeah. a lot of great beach boy songs dane just said sail on sailor It could be
0: another great track
3: hey thanks for the suggestion i'm gonna th- i'm gonna listen to that one
0: 73 that's 73 yeah uh, that had a. Uh... Blondie Chaplin singing on that when he was in the band for a minute or two in, in 73. That was my last great Brian Wilson song of that. You gotta give me credit if you guys decide to do it. Okay, I'll do that
3: one.
4: <laughs> no, better yet, let Dane, let Dane drum on that track. It'd be great.
3: Okay. We're gonna have some guest stars on that, baby. Well, thank you so much. I'll tell you what. This is the longest one I've done in these bunch of interviews. Probably the most fun and rewarding one you guys you know, are hit me from three different angles of questions and it's been great. So thank you very much. Of
4: course, right thank back you at for you. Time. Yep, our player.
1: It's NFL draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football.